0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the IFF Podcast. Doug Stern's here with me today. I'm Mark Treglio, and we have a very special guest. Say hello, Doug. Sorry about that.
1: Hello, Doug. How's everybody doing out there? (laughs) (laughs) So the past couple episodes,
0: we've focused on uh, different issues that are out there. Uh, Hurricanes, we've talked about uh, the incident in Los Angeles. Today, we are going to bring up a, a, a large incident. And 2020 has been one hell of a year so far. We're just about halfway through it, Uh, between COVID, between the recession, murder hornets, uh, civil unrest, you name it. Uh, One of the events that have the potential, believe it or not, to be overshadowed in all this is the wildfire season.
2: Uh,
0: It's hurricane season now. It's also heading into wildland fire season for a lot of states out there. And it's important to know that you know, here at the IFF, we're on top of all of that stuff that's going on. And our guest today plays a very important role in making sure the IFF is that it's on the front lines at the top of his game when it comes to wildland firefighting, firefighters in the wildland urban interface environment and uh, the safety that comes along with that. So at this time, I wanna introduce uh, Director Rick Swan. He's from our health and safety division. He handles uh, our operational services and that includes our fireground survival training our, and our new wildland uh, interface education program that we'll be talking about later. So
1: Rick, thank you for joining us. How are you today?
2: Thank you, sir. I'm doing good. How are you today?
1: Good. Thanks, Rick. We appreciate you being here. Um, I think, you know, for me, coming from the middle of America, wildfires is something that I never really considered. So I'm looking forward to kind of learning a little bit more today and hearing what the IFF is doing to help our members that are out there battle on the wildland fires.
2: Thank you. I look forward to it.
0: So Rick, you, you come from Cal Fire, one of the largest fire departments in the nation. Uh, most people, when most people think about large fire departments. They think about big city fire departments, but the Cal Fire is a totally different animal, uh, in its own. So tell us about, tell us about yourself. Tell us about your time there and a little educated by about Cal Fire.
2: So, um, I spent 33 years working for Cal Fire. The time I started, it was called the Department of Forestry, and it had uh, it has morphed into exactly what it's called, uh, California's Fire Department. There are 58 counties in the, the state of California, 36 of those counties and over 100 special service districts have CAL FIRE as their provider for their standard full-service municipal fire service. That includes paramedics, ladder companies, lifeguards, hazardous material, that kind of stuff. So this is not just a... Uh, wildland fire service or fire department. Uh, It has a lot to do with it, and about half of our workforce is on the wildland side, and about the other half of that workforce is on the municipal side. And I had a very uh, lucky career where I was able to wear the same uniform. I started working in San Luis Obispo County. I moved to Fresno County and then up to Lake Tahoe area, down to the Bay Area in San Francisco on the peninsula, and then back down to San Luis Obispo County, where I finished my career as a deputy chief. And through that whole time, I was able to keep the same badge on and and do the same kind of job that I was doing. I spent uh, several years working as an air attack group supervisor, and that's the command and control uh, of air resources on on large and small incidents. And we kind of like to say is, is we try to avoid metal touching in the sky. It's not a good thing. And that's what our job was, is to de-conflict. And um, I worked with hand crews and, and uh, bulldozers. And also I worked with paramedics and lifeguards. So I have had an incredible career that I was able to, to work and, and enjoyed. <laughs> I enjoyed all 33 years. Some of them were a little tougher than others, but it was great to uh, to be there and to, to gain the experiences that I have.
1: Yeah, Rick, you know, you, you talked about air assault. When, when, you, when you say that, you know, what kind of resources does Cal Fire bring? You guys are bringing in planes, bulldozers, helicopters. I mean, kind of talk, talk about some of the things, the resources, you know, apparatus-wise, that you guys throw at things.
2: One of the biggest principles behind Cal Fire is that they strive to keep 90% of the fires to 10 acres or less. And then they try to do 98% of the fires to stay into the first burning period. And so what that means is is that we bring uh, and try to bring a lot of resources to the fire quickly and, and really hammer it hard. Our um, air bases are spaced uh, 20 minutes apart. Uh, that's 20 air minutes apart. Uh, and so we'd like to have a, an aircraft over a fire within 20 minutes. That's what, our, that's what it's designed for. That's either a helicopter or uh, our um, S2T air tankers, which carry about 1,200 gallons of uh, retardant. And in those bases, we also have uh, our command and control aircraft or Vietnam-era plane that has been repurposed into uh, providing that uh, that command and control uh, resource. So that air attack officer then is um, allowed to view the incident from above, pass that, that information that they're looking at down to the incident commander. And then between the two, they can devise an operational plan. And that plan can, can consist of uh, bulldozers that we have uh, all throughout the state. And they work very well in light brush and grass for these quick initial attacks. We bring in hand crews that go into the more steeper areas uh, all around uh, the, the state. And then we also have our fire engines. And, and all this is done, uh, again, through a coordinated effort. Uh, and now with homes and people moving out into the wildland a little bit more, it brings a new component. So now you're bringing in uh, other resources, uh, uh, type one fire engines, to hopefully uh, make it out to the homes and and fr- provide that protection. But um, it is a it's a coordinated effort. We work to bring in the attack from the air to provide the slowing of the fire because air attack, our air air resources don't put out fires. Only ground resources put the fires out. Those air resources are designed to slow the fire down so that our ground resources can then come in and extinguish the fire
1: interesting i didn't realize that that's cool um so you know we'll get into this but one of the things that's always interested me is you guys work crazy shifts during wildfire <laughs> season right i mean what what's an what's a shift look like for a cal fire firefighter or when for you when you were doing this out there on the on the front lines
2: yeah for well for our normal shift uh, our uh, rank and file we work uh, three days on four days off and and i i should say it's a 72-hour shift some do a two on two off with a six-day kelly it's a it's a variation but the bulk is three days on four days off it's morphed its way down into that three-day shift when i started as a firefighter i was working five days five 24-hour days um, and i was lucky i thought i was lucky when when i started out that they gave me that fifth night release so i could go home on that uh after uh, four and a half days of working and i thought i was in you know, in heaven, being able to have that extra night off. But then in fire season, uh, because in essence, we have two shifts, uh, you're either you're on duty or you're off duty. That's and basically how it sits. If you're on duty and you get called or responded to a large fire, your your fire engine leaves the station and you go and, and uh, then they bring in a a fire engine. They kind of spread the forces out a little bit. And then they wait until the shift returns that follow that next shift comes on. And then you're there and you staff that. And because there's really nobody coming behind you, you're either on a fire or you're in a fire station and you're not home. You're either, you're working, period. It just depends on where you're working at. When I was working, it was not common that we would be gone for these, you know, two month swaths of, of time. The longest I was ever gone on a fire was one month. And that was 20, 29 days. So I, I say one month, but uh, almost, but 29 straight days. I was home for a weekend and a little bit longer and then I was gone again for another week and a half. But but now it's becoming more and more common because of one the amount of fires um and then the um the the, the issue of uh, of having enough resources to to bring on uh and to to staff up a fire properly and then not only staff up a, a fire but also to staff up the resources that you're leaving behind in the uh, in the fire station because as as you guys know just because a fire station goes out on a call doesn't mean that there's not a call in that same fire station's district anymore. Uh, you still have to uh, provide services to those folks that you leave behind. So, yeah, it can be um, kind of maddening at times. It, it, you get into a, uh, a groundhog day effect where, um, as the longer you're on a fire and the longer you are going through the same kind of routine, it can become a you uh, can become complacent, and and that's when I when I think that you can uh, you let your guard down.
0: You know, one of the one of the areas that I think that this is such a such a big issue. I think I think the health and safety in the twenty nine days of being out there every day. It's a tremendous health and safety risk to anybody out there on the wildland uh, firefighting scene. That's that's, that's crazy. Uh, but going back to the overall incidents, these are large complex incidents that that maybe firefighters in the firehouse in an urban setting. They don't understand there's a lot that goes into these these incidents that we're seeing on tv that we're seeing eating up cities you know discuss some of that let's let's talk about that what goes into uh, putting together such a large response
2: there's a lot of pre-planning that goes into this and the other thing is, is that the the, the one I, I guess you say the nice thing about this is the the mutual aid uh, response in california we exercise this usually on a weekly basis Um, whether it's large or small. Uh, A large incident ramps up in a variety of ways, uh, but mostly you get the fire engines to show up first, obviously. And then they spend about uh, anywhere between 24 to 36 hours out there uh, working. Uh, During that time, though, um, the incident has started to evolve behind the scenes into the logistical parts. And they will bring on a small city we bring in uh, fueling, uh, kitchens, caterers, eating spaces, uh, showers, laundry facilities, uh, bathroom facilities. You you name it. Um, they they bring it on board. And if you are away from a metropolitan area or a city that has um, uh, motels and that and those kind of amenities, they bring in sleeping trailers, and that can provide uh, an environmental environmentally friendly. Uh, sleeping area for you. It's not the best, and there are some derogatory terms for those types of uh, trailers. But um, I guess it works. They bring in mechanics. T- they can replace tires. They can do all kinds of stuff on these. Right? It's self-sufficient. If you, you go in there, you drive into these things. You can get. Uh, if I need to replenish my my uh, hose complement, I can get I can get fire hose. If I need a, a fire shelter, I can get a new fire shelter. If I need medical attention, there's a medical uh, unit that can provide medical attention. In the last uh, few years, we've really upgraded the behavioral health component, where we have peer support folks that are on these uh, uh, in these incident bases now, day on, day off, the 24-hour shift on, and then and it's not you're not just on 24 hours because you're out on the line for 24 hours. It takes an hour to get to the line. It takes an hour before that to eat breakfast, go to shift, uh, go to uh, briefing. Then you come back in. Now you got to get your fire engine all cleaned up and set. You got to eat. You got to clean up. All those kind of things. So, it's 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 not a bad shift. Um, you get a lot more downtime and a lot more sleep, a lot a lot better rest on the twenty four hour shift. But um, again, it is um, it, it's it's it can't be monotonous. But they try to bring in as much of that support as possible, so that everything you need it can be uh, received from there. Sack lunches. You can go get sack lunches, water, ice, so you can send out for the day. Um, you name it, like I said, they just about have it. Uh, I've even seen um, the uh, local areas will bring in um, uh, massage tables, and uh, they'll offer up massage uh, tables for the uh, for the firefighters. So it is, it is quite an event, and um, the, one of the funny things that comes along with all these things are the t-shirt vendors that pop up outside of fire camp in their tents making t-shirts, and um, the old saying comes in. Uh, they've gone to that fire. Oh, yeah, been there, got that. Uh, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, and and that's kind of what it is. It's um, it's a small small city, and you have all sorts of uh, the personalities that that go along with a small city.
0: If they're setting up selling T-shirts, Doug and I are going to come out and do a show at uh, yeah. at one of these cities.
2: Well, and I say you, sh- you should. I, I mean, <laughs> um, I think you'll be so amazed at the efforts, the organization. And the information that, that is set uh, in, those, uh, in those fire camps, uh, I, I think it would give uh, a lot of insight to what goes on. And I think also a lot of, uh, of confidence behind what we're doing and, and how it's all working and, and, and where that money is going for all these for the efforts on these fires.
1: Well, If you're setting up a small city like that, how long does that take?
2: It's amazing how fast it can come in. These things are trailerized. They'll, I've seen where uh, a, a, a kitchen trailer will come in and, and in a, a Cal Fire kitchen, they bring in uh, a, hand, uh, a hand crew, two hand crews that will, will staff that. Uh, they'll bring in that kitchen. They'll be cooking. And if the fire starts at um, uh, in the afternoon on, on day one, they'll have dinner on day two set up for probably about uh, 500 to 1,000 people set and ready to go. Wow. uh a and and that's less you know about 24 hours give or take they'll be able to have dinner set up and running and um and then from that point on it kind of uh, uh builds from there as on an as needed so as the fire grows the uh number of um uh feeding you need to add more feeding you need to add more uh servicing for you need to add more fuel trucks all those kind of things and they have a formula for this like i said it is a time tested operation that, um, even if you're looking at it and walking through fire camp, you won't really understand all the nuts and bolts that go through with it, unless you've actually walked through and been inside some of the trailers and listened to what the work goes on, that goes on in those trailers.
0: An amazing career in enlightening us on things that we, we never even thought of that would be going on in a wildland fire incident in some of the bigger incidents out there, um, throughout your 33 years, what are some of the biggest incidents that you, that you took part in? That, uh, that, that are etched in your mind?
2: Well, one was uh, um, uh, around the 2003 timeframe, uh, what's when they had the Cedar Fire, and probably at that point in time, one of the, the deadliest uh, fire seasons and largest fire seasons uh, that had been around. I was on a fire in Los Angeles County called the Grand Prix Fire. And uh, that fire came off of uh, one mountain and was headed for um, a community I, as I got into the uh, into the scene, I had a, a division uh, supervisor job So I had a, a geographical area and about uh, five different strike teams of fire engines. That's five fire engines in a and a, a supervisor and our job was to Try to at least push this fire around this this subdivision and the subdivision had people in it still trying to leave so if you can imagine trying to bring in 25 fire engines and 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 put them in a place that that you could operate in and get people out at the same time uh, the chaos in that was just and when you walk in the door immediately you just like it, it is amazing but within a few minutes uh with the efforts of these um uh strike team leaders and 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 uh, a few folks else in there we were able to you know define up the area and 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 really push this fire around this subdivision while these people were leaving. And, and uh, I think we only lost a couple of homes in there. And then that night kind of turned into longer periods. I ended up being on that fire for about three weeks. It burned into a, a, a well, it, another fire burned into it called the old fire it went through San Bernardino, but um, I, uh, I was working night shift and uh, there's a 12 hour shifts there. And so it, it uh, this during the Santa Ana winds and, and at, at, um, it's kind of funny is that you knew exactly what you were going to be up against because at six o'clock at five o'clock in the afternoon, we had briefing at six o'clock roughly I'm out on the line, uh, going through a debrief with the uh, day shift, uh, division supervisor. And he's telling me about this stuff and what's going on. And that's usually just about an hour or so before the evening winds hit up. And that usually comes in around eight eight or eight o'clock or so goes until about 10 o'clock at night. And the winds will come through and just, Rip through, and now you're chasing this thing again. And about eleven o'clock, the winds kind of start subsiding, and you get a chance to catch your breath. You get a chance to kind of clean up what's been coming through you. And then, at about three o'clock in the morning, the fire, the, the winds kick up again. And now those run all the way in through six o'clock in the morning when you're trying to do shift change um, with the crew coming on uh, for the next day. And and uh, it was it was just such you could literally set your watch on the, the winds as they came through and, and just, a you know, an amazing event going back and forth, back and forth. And it, it was kind of a, just a running fight, uh, trying to stay ahead of it and trying to, uh, uh, out, out, guess it, that, that kind of thing. And so, uh, I, like you say, an amazing event on, uh, on that. And then, um, the other one that it just really kind of sits out there is, uh, uh, in 2008, I was on a. Um, uh, it's, it's called the Shasta Lightning series. There was about four fires that burned together. Ended up about 100,000 acres all in total, and that's the one I was on there, out there for you know, about a month. But I was flying air attack then. I was I flew 22 straight days in an airplane, um, about uh, seven or eight hours uh, each shift or each each day, give or take. Did- do they give um, like
1: CAL FIRE frequent flyer miles for that or are you just kind
2: of on your you own? Mean, I, I wish. There's, there's, there's a lot of frequent th- things in there that you, you wish that they could provide. But um, the, the, the thing about the, within our Tech program, our pilots are only allowed to fly seven hours total for the day. There's no limit on attack captains. <laughs> and, and if you have two pilots, guess. So there was several days where I was flying 12, hour, 12 hours in, a, in an airplane and and that is uh yeah that that uh it not the physical work is not going on i'm not physically beating myself walking up and down hills and and twisting my knees and back out It all it it it, it all goes that, that that firefight is all between your ears and in an airplane you have nine radios a uh, nine, nine nine channels that you can work on um and you, you split those up with your with your pilot and uh the crew resource management is one of the biggest pieces that uh Uh, that you have and and they're starting to look at crew resource management as an as a in a different aspect uh on the fire scene and and on fire engines now on how uh the crew can complement each other by dealing with tasks that are that need to be done and that uh divvying out of those tasks so uh, um but that's that way i i learned so much on there we had we had the dc-10 uh large air tanker very large air tanker we had the Martin Mars, um, a water scooping airplane from, uh, from Canada, uh, four um, C-130 uh, mil- uh, na- uh, National Guard uh, airplanes, about 10 uh, regular contract air tankers and, and stuff, and about 25 different helicopters that were on that fire that we were coordinating at any one time uh, of the day. So the... Um, the, it's it, like I said so this job that and and lucky that I'm able to do this but I, I've, I've had the physical job of actually working walking up and down hills and that mental aspect of the job that uh, for 22 days flying in an airplane that um, uh, was just it was fascinating it was fantastic you know you look back on it and you're going wow that was pretty cool
0: i'm still I'm still caught up with how nonchalant you were about controlling 25 engines in a neighborhood yeah. Uh, that's that's a big response I, I don't i don't think the average firefighter there can comprehend having 25 engines in one neighborhood unless you're really there on a, on a big wildfire like that
2: and, it is uh, um um one of the things that i think that uh cal fire does is that um we have um uh, engineers that are company officers on fire engines and they have a, uh, the normal complement on a regular fire engine, you'd have a, a firefighter, an engineer, an operator, and then a captain um, or a lieutenant. And in our case, we have, uh, our, I guess you say our lieutenants are, would be our engineers, but they're also the drivers and our captains are the drivers. And from an early age in the, in the fire service, um, as, a, as a first on scene to an incident, I was able, as an engineer, I was able to contact the air attack officer or just the air, ta- the, uh, air tanker that was circling and we were able to make drops and, um, uh, you get really used to that, that large yes of, of things at times, uh, understanding the, 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 a, a larger piece of the puzzle than just that's that, that one side of the building that we might think on a, of, you know, I'm going to be on the B side and I have a lot of resources. That's kind of how you, you, you map it out. I'm, I'm, I'm on the B side of a, of a, of a building. This happens to be a subdivision and it's just a larger geographical stretch. Um, and again, you put a lot of emphasis onto the supervisors that are there with you. And it's not just me supervising 25 fire engines. It's me supervising five people that are then supervising their five fire engines and all working with a common goal, uh, with a plan and, and putting that plan together. Um, what's fascinating, what's really cool is watching that plan work. That is, um, you know, you, you, you go, you can go to sleep at night, even though you, you beat yourself up on certain things, but knowing that, that that plan came together, that's really cool.
0: This is the IFF podcast. And we're here today with, uh, Rick Swan, director of health and safety operational services at the IFF and 33, 33 year career with uh, Cal fire out in California So after a great career, which obviously the way we've been going, we can do four more shows on this. It's been a fascinating discussion so far. And you've gotten to do a lot more than the average firefighter does. But then after 33 years, you got to come to DC uh, to really start the wildland fire operations for the IFF. Uh, So tell us about coming, coming East.
2: That's a, that's one of those, um, um, I guess you say right place, right time, the door opens and you walk through that sort of thing. Um, You know, there, the the grace of God coming down and and saying, hey, I got this opportunity. But um, my local, local 2081, as a member of the executive board for many years, uh, we had been lobbying the IFF for a greater presence and on the issues of uh, urban interface and wildland. And the general president had been very, uh, been working very hard with us on, on uh, research programs, on getting um, uh, support for um, uh, PPE studies and uh, wear trials and that sort of stuff, and uh, so it just so happened that um, at a uh, ledge conference, I uh, 2015, um, I was working uh, with our with some of our, our members that were here. We were and I was in a just come out of a, a meeting with one of the legislators, and uh, I get a phone call from uh, President Lopez at the time. And he said, Hey, I, I need to talk to you. I, I, I think the general president is going to, uh, he's really, he's really going to put this, this effort together. And I said, well, this is cool. This is, this is great. So we came and had a conversation and um, we talked about some of the things we might be able to do. And, and then um, I don't know, I, I a couple of, maybe a week later, two weeks later, I don't remember exactly how long it was. I get a phone call from the general president and, and he asked me if, I would uh, like to uh, stand up uh, this new wildland department that the IFF was going to put together. And, and, and I I was floored to have that conversation. I mean, all this time and effort and, and, and thoughts and on all the folks that have gone through and a lot of the folks that have come before me and, and, and I get that phone call. It, I mean, that's, it, it was an amazing, an amazing phone call for me. And he asked me if I would come to DC and, uh, I said, "Well, uh, that's going to be an interesting piece." I asked him. I said, "Well, sir, can um, can I um, uh, can I work from California?" Uh, and he goes, "Absolutely not. Your office is here, in, your, your office is here in D.C. You need to be here so that we can be a part. You can be part of the team, and uh, this is where the uh, we're going to be. putting that together. Okay, I, I understand. I agree. Sounds familiar. I agree with right. you one hundred percent. Yeah, that that doesn't <laughs> <laughs> exactly right. That 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 line has probably been used over and over again." Um, and rightfully so. And, 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 and that, that was wisdom because it's been a, it has been an excellent piece the wildfires, especially in this case, wildfires are not part of California alone. They're all over the United States. So, so, uh, I talked to my wife, she's a, a writer and she works from home and I have two daughters and they were both away in college and we were looking at downsizing anyway. And, uh, we said, okay, um, let's do this. And, um I, I was not a um uh a stranger to the IFF because i had been um uh, as part of the NFPA um representatives for the uh, the IFF for many years and uh, i worked helped, and, and kind of uh, was uh, uh, really i guess immersed into the uh, firefighter health and safety and especially on the uh, wildland and urban interface issues um and um uh, even to the point where I was asked to uh, uh, participate in the International Standards Organization process, or ISO, uh, for uh, wildland and, and urban interface uh, protective clothing and equipment uh, pieces. So, I saw this as, as a you know a fantastic opportunity. I actually to to, to bring uh, the influence of the IFF into the urban interface and the wildland fire and health and safety issues. Um, uh, there had been so little research done at the time on on wildfires and, and really on its, uh, the health effects of, uh, on firefighters, but at the time, you know, early on in, uh, in 2000, very little, I mean, hardly any research is done on the urban interface, uh, those inner urban interface fires and the health effects that it has on firefighters. And I thought this was the moment that, uh, when the IFF could push for more information and more research on the issues and, and bring the IFFs, uh, weight behind that, that effort to, uh, enhance that, um uh, that education and research that is, that is lacking. And um, and I, I think we've been pretty successful in, in moving a needle here and, and getting people to think about some things where uh, our firefighters are exposed to uh, these toxins. We know that the toxins that are coming out of, of homes, these structure fires, uh, and an, an urban interface fire is simply a structure fire that you're not going inside of, but you're running up right next to and in and, and around and um, also adding to that, a wildland fire that's kind of pushing its way towards you. Also, so um, a lot of different, uh, a lot of the same uh, insults, but in different um, uh, concentrations and uh, and longer exertion periods. So a a, um, um, a part of uh, that research that uh, had fallen blank for many years. So I think we're starting to turn the page, and um, I look forward to some more of this and hopefully another grant here soon to give us some more information.
0: One of the things I think the GP doesn't get a lot of credit for is that when he brings on a team member, he lets that person go and lets them be innovative and creative and lets them try to develop things and part of bringing you along I mean I mean just to see what you've done since 2015 and you've been there it's it's been amazing even even in terms of disaster relief and how we operate and other, other aspects of bringing that incident command Cal fire experience over to what we do at headquarters is also that urban interface education that you're developing. And I know you touched a little bit about being able to develop things, but you've developed an entirely whole new program for, for those in the urban interface, correct?
2: Yeah. Um, yeah, we call it uh, the IFF responding to the interface. And uh, in two thousand fifteen, NFPA did a, um, uh, a a needs assessment. They do one every five years, give or take. And it, and and it really opened my eyes when I started reviewing some of the information. Uh, uh, and a lot of the uh, the pieces in there, uh, they interviewed. I don't know how many departments they interviewed and and survey, and got surveys back. But over ninety percent of those fire departments that were responding to that survey. Said that they deal with or respond to wildland or urban interface fires but the the amazing piece of this is that of those 90% of the 90% of those uh, Fire departments that responded that they do this only 33% of those said that they train their firefighters on how to respond to these types of fires and That that was that was amazing I, I, along with you folks, I bet you You've gone to wildland fires in your career, if they're just lot fires or whatever, and other than a, a quick uh, down and dirty eight-hour class um, uh, from uh, NWCG, probably not a whole lot of other training. But I can just about guarantee you that, um, uh, unfortunately, you, you probably never had an opportunity to look at, and thank God you never able to had to respond to uh, an urban interface fire, but. Um, so we um uh, brought in a group of smes from across the united states from florida from colorado california texas maine washington state and we we started looking at some of the issues and how these were, were what these were facing and uh we started looking at the material that was available and found that really the only training for for urban interface uh uh for training urban uh, firefighters on urban interface was to train wildland firefighters on how to perform in the urban interface. And that no one had a program to train structural firefighters on how to deal with the urban interface. And, um, you know, um, like I said, the, the these, these urban interface fires are not the sole property of the West. Uh, the Southeast has a lot of fires that burn up many homes um, uh, 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 like this. And I think you've seen the, um, the unfortunate pictures of these firefighters out in turnout pants and t-shirts, uh, trying to, uh, you know, put these fires out or or to turn the corner on these fires. And there are over 70,000 communities, uh, that are facing the urban interface problem. And, and the question comes down to it is that, um, uh, you know, municipal fire agencies are responsible for those homes in their communities. And that's what this class is all about. This class is all about being able to provide firefighters and company officers the basic skills they need to safely operate in that urban interface environment and successfully defend those homes while suppressing interface fires. It's 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 a it sounds simple. It's a complex set of, of, of tactics um, that it's not difficult to do once you have the ideas behind it. But if you're not told, if you don't have that uh, picture in your brain, you don't understand. does that I get a call. I'm the company officer on a first day in the incident with smoke showing um, at Residence 1234 Main Street. Well, I get up to 1234 Main Street, and it's a long driveway, and I see five uh, mailboxes on this long driveway. I can see the smoke coming up behind it. So I drive my Type 1 fire engine down this driveway and turn the corner. I can't see any fire. I can see the smoke. And I turn the corner, and I, I, I'm... You know a quarter of a mile down this driveway practically and now i turn the corner and i see this this wildland fire that's coming up brushing up against a garage or an outbuilding or some sort of thing and and uh i brought no water with me i've got no idea what's going on maybe i did drop a hose at the at the um at the the street um but uh this is a this is a, a new world you turn the corner and you've got this new thing that you're facing and if you don't have an understanding of what you're going to be able to do in that situation and some of the tactics that you can use in that situation, you're going to be end up trying to back this fire engine, back this road, out of this road to kind of in, get into a spot that you're going to be familiar and you're going to be safe. And, and um, that's what we're trying to do is we're just trying to open the eyes to a different set of pictures and a different set of, of, of problems out there because they, we're, we're looking at it now where... Um, Fires. There's three different types of fires we have now. We have wildland fires, we have structure fires, and we have these urban interface fires that aren't really structure fires and aren't really wildland fires, and they have their own set of tactics. And that's what we wanna do is we wanna try to open up those to folks so that they can um, uh, have those tools and uh, not hurt themselves. And um, that's number one, not hurt their crew, and then also provide that uh, um, valuable uh, resource for the community. So um, the the class is that we have an online class. It is uh, available to anybody. Uh, it's about takes you about eight hours to uh, to do the class online, and then um, uh, we would uh, we bring behind that a two day hands on class. And right now we have uh, some grant programs that are we uh, are able to utilize, so it it can be at no cost. And um, we are also in the final phase of completing a train the trainer class. And this would allow some of the larger departments to uh, uh, train all their members on a more cost-effective basis. And, uh, uh, you know, we've got three fire, three large fire departments right now that are utilizing the online material right now, as we speak, uh, getting their folks that awareness uh, session so they can uh, get up and get ready for, uh, for fire season. So a fascinating, fascinating program. Uh, it wasn't just me that I, mean, I have 15 instructors that are now putting this class on and, um i it's it's been a it's been very rewarding
0: how does somebody get a hold of you to get that training
2: simple enough rtiprogram.iff.org and uh i'll get the email now now you're doing more
0: than just the education part uh, i know you're working on a little project out in california i believe it is the the wildland fire conservancy can you can you give us a little about that
2: Yes. Um, so for many years, um, I've uh, been working with um, uh, P- Professor uh, uh, Matt Ron, Dr. Matt Ron. Uh, he worked at uh, Cal State San Marcos and Cal State uh, San Diego. And uh, we've been doing um, uh, several, we've been doing a couple of symposiums. And and uh, one of the things that came out of the symposium was, uh, several years ago, was an educational component. And uh, meeting a, um, met the specific needs of uh, what um, employers would use for um, if they were going to create a um, a training program an educational program a degree program, what would it look like and so uh, through that research and through that uh, that process uh, we've we've now come across and, and they've created the um, the wildfire Conservancy and uh, it's a research foundation and it has three main focus areas. And one is improving firefighter health and safety. Um, uh, the second one is, is advancing the attack effectiveness uh, for, um, uh, for firefighters and for fire departments. And the third is um, uh, increasing community resilience within the, the urban interface um, environment. And um, we, we try to look at this as a, as a full-blown component. Many of the um, schools, uh, universities, they all have some sort of, of um, you know, forestry educational program, and and they deal with uh, it, it. It deals mostly though with the vegetation or the land use along those lines. It doesn't deal with the fire environment, and so this is the first of its kind uh, fire environment uh, class and, and and program. And uh, the the conservancy is 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 kind of is set up in a, a sense. It's for the it. Now we're trying to the new home for the Environmental Leadership Institute and Academy, which is a program that has been developed by Cal State San Marcos and um, and, and part of that, that educational program. And this program is designed to bring uh, firefighters into a research environment and researchers into a firefighter environment. Um, we have a lot of firefighters that would be more than happy to put instrumentation on them and they can go and walk up on the fire lines because they're trained to do that they're not trained researchers and they don't know how to put that stuff on them we have a lot of great researchers who know how to write papers who know how to look for things know how to ask the right questions but they don't know how to go out and fight fires and in this case what they're trying to do is trying to meld those together turn that into one individual and really work that individual into back into the community back into uh, the educational process and, and you know so, so that now we can improve the awareness and engage agencies and organizations and individuals so we can address the urban interface problem uh, and the health and health and safety issues that are affecting it through a, a research supported operation and it's it's a it's a new method of, of trying to put these things together uh, dr. Ron says in many ways that um, in many cases universities like to produce students that nobody needs. And have programs that nobody wants, and so what we're trying to do is turn this completely around and we want to produce students that um, that that employers need uh land use folks for uh those um, communities that that uh that are facing these researchers that know how to do this work we we want uh, uh code enforcement officials so that we can start looking at this on a on a totality, not just a uh, um not just on firefighter view or research review, but from a complete view. And then, you know, like I said early on, we're trying to provide research and education into these, uh, the, the firefighter health and safety issues that um, are, are plaguing us in this, uh, in this arena. And I think this is going to be a great opportunity uh, to, to put all these things into one place and have that available for expert testimony and research and And I think of you for politicians and also for firefighters to um, uh, move forward for the future. Very cool. So
1: as we look forward, you know, we talked about the big fires you had in the past. What do you see coming up for the 2020 wildfire season?
2: Well, one of the funny things is that when I was working, everybody would always ask me, um, you know, how does this look? How does this look? What about this fire season? And, you know, so I had 30 years in the career and I'd say, well, you know, I have to tell you, I, I think this is going to be the 30th annual worst fire season in history. <laughs> and because I, you, you know, the, the, next, the next part of that question and the answer is, is that, you know what, talk to me in December and I'll let you know. Because um, you can, it, it, it's again, it's like hurricane season. They predict, you know, I think this time they predicted like 18 named storms or 13 named storms. And, and those are predictions. And, and you can get pretty good at it because you have the rainfall and, and uh, all those other things, but I have to tell you is that uh, I've had some of the worst fire seasons where the winter before was very wet because you put a lot of grass out and you get these big grass crops. They go dormant in the summertime. Uh, it, it it spawns the, uh, the brush to go, and now you get these huge brush fires that go across. Um, you get the larger, more, uh, I say campaign fires during the drought because Um, you have trees and the trees get involved. Those, those take a lot longer to get a, take the effect of the drought. So, um, yeah, it's, um, I, I think, uh, this year is going to be like many in the past. Uh, they had a relatively, um, I say moderate, uh, rainfall. I think the snowpack had been pretty consistent. Most of the reservoirs were up, uh, not a particularly bad rainy season throughout the West but not a great one so um, I, I would look and see if this could be possibly along the lines of last year as far as numbers of fires numbers of starts and the sizes of fires um that you get the anomalies of uh of uh the tubs fire the car fire and the camp fire that happened to uh be that these these communities are in front of where these fires start unfortunately um so uh those are the ones that we remember but um it it's just the amount of um uh incidents that are out there that i think uh, will we'll, we'll, we'll get us not necessarily uh the huge ones but just the number of them so um yeah it it's i, I see this as i'd say a normal fire year
0: did last season even end are <laughs> I mean, we out of just calling them seasons now
2: yeah well i think i think that that is a um i think that's a fair term in most parts of the country That there are particular times when, you know, when there's snow on the ground, it's very difficult for a fire to burn. Um, They do, but it's very difficult. Um, So I think in many parts of the of the nation and in North America, I think you can say that safely. I think there are some places though where there there is no season anymore. I think you can find that in California and much of the West, and I think you're starting to see that also in the Southeast, in Florida and those areas, where uh, drought and Uh, The conditions that come back and forth there, other than in the, you know, in I guess you'd say you call it the monsoon season, uh, I think that yes, there is no term fire season. It just doesn't end in all of the places. uh, It 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 doesn't end in many in those southern um, aspects uh, of California and Florida. Uh, I think we're going to get to the point where we're going to see those more and more common, even when we when we're not recognizing fire season.
1: It's probably safe to say, Rick, and I know it's safe to say, no matter what the season looks like, the IFF is going to be there for our members, no matter what they need, as well, right?
2: One of the one of the best things about this job, I got to tell you, is that um, um, as as Mark as you said earlier, is that uh, the general president has is not one to stand over you and and uh, um, uh, you know uh, always have the the micromanagement. He allows his folks to really look forward, and and I think that's what is what is happening. We 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 deal with the problem. You have a you have a house fire. You deal with the problem. That's the problem right there in front of you, um, and we do that. That's that's kind of what we've been trained to do. But the other aspect of it is is that uh, we also in, in from the IFF. Uh, I think we've kind of built into this thing is that okay, we understand that there's a problem. We need to look at how do we move out of that problem and how can we solve that problem down the line. We're looking at it right now with the COVID-19 pandemic. We have a problem right now of PPE. Well, okay, we're trying to deal with that problem right now, but we also have folks looking into the future and how we're going to deal with this into the future so that we don't get smacked by this again, or try not to be, but at least we're looking at the future and looking forward to it. And I think one of the biggest places that this has been Manifested itself in with the IFF is through our behavioral health issues Um, when when that article came out and and um, the the onslaught of oh my gosh the realization is that we have you know turned the light on and Now we're looking at it. Well, okay We had a problem and we started dealing with that problem creating some support classes and that work really hard but the looking forward piece and that moving forward was the creating of the the center of excellence that was something that was revolutionary. And, and I think that is what is best about the IFF, is that not only do we deal with the problems that we have in hand, we look forward and we try to find solutions that can better our membership, that can uh, be there for our members, that are all about our members' health and safety. And, and that, is, um, that is what's best about working for the IFF.
0: I thought that might be it, but, uh, do you have any, well, let me rephrase that here. Any last closing thoughts, Rick, before we, uh, close out the show today?
2: Well, uh, I, I, just a, a couple, um, you know, um, it is, uh, I, I, I hope that, um, uh, through an, an opportunity of, um, uh, of education and information that we can provide our members that, um, uh, if I could do nothing more than um, get our firefighters to say, "Oh, there is wildland out there. We do, we do face this wildland. We do face this urban interface problem." Uh, that would be the one thing because I, I, I know, in talking to many folks, and 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 I, Doug, I think you you hit the nail on the head. Is that you know I, I never heard of this before. I never really, I never had this problem, and and I think that uh, if nothing else, um, by having this department having this this piece of this department on urban interface and wildland. I I, I hope that we can bring that, uh, that education to our members and that um, uh, just open their eyes a little bit and say, there's a lot of, a lot of things out there that can reach up and smack us. And uh, hopefully this is uh, one that we can put our eyes on.
0: Rick, thank you for joining us today. It's been an awesome episode. A great discussion on on the wildland firefighting from, from your aspect of things. I appreciate you coming on today. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Doug.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Rick. Uh, This has been, you know, just the last couple episodes really enlightening on what we provide our members. So, you know, for those of you out there that haven't already, make sure that you like, make sure that you share and make sure that you're subscribing to the IFF podcast. We say it every time you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, but especially important as we start talking more and more about these things you share it with other firefighters. And other so until next time, everybody stay safe.